You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, this morning we thank you for the privilege of being back together here again. As we study your word today, as we open the scriptures once again, as we see these things in our culture, may we be drawn to you. May we rejoice in the resurrection power of Jesus, not the trinkets or the charms of this dark world here today. So bless us now, we ask. Give us your Holy Spirit, we pray. Lord, cleanse our hearts from sin that I may speak and we may hear from you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. So yesterday I started with kind of an illustration and we talked about orange juice. And I said if there are two glasses of orange juice, how many of you would love to take one of those fresh-squeezed juices? And I said to you, there's one for you and there's one for me. And so we both drink them, but what I did not tell you is that one of them had a drop of cobra venom in it and I didn't tell you which one it was. And I still didn't tell you, so you're not certain. But you know that that drop of cobra venom can kill three fully grown large men. How many think that we ought to be more careful about what we just grab onto in this life? What do you think? You think that's a good idea? You think it's a good idea as a Christian to filter everything that we do, whether it's our entertainment or what we choose to engage ourselves in, what we choose to think about, what we choose to eat or wear. And, and that's not to say that we're saved by those things. You understand? You know, what I'm telling you here today is that to reject these things doesn't grant you salvation. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's how we receive our salvation. But God has given the Christian a guiding principle and many principles in life to enhance our lives, to help us avoid deception, to help us to have a deeper understanding of the truth. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful thing? And that anything that God hates is for our own good. Anything that is good for us, He does not withhold. Aren't you thankful for that today? And so we looked at a number of texts, and this is one of the texts we looked at, that Satan, especially in the last days, has the ability and the power to transform himself into an angel of what? Into an angel of light. And the reason he transforms himself into an angel of light is not to make manifest his desire to be your friend. It's his desire to present to you something that looks appealing, that looks attractive, that looks like it teaches good principles, but in fact, he wants to lead you away from the truth and away from Christ himself. Can we agree on that this morning? And so many things today will look good. They may sound good on the surface. They may appear good, but they are not good. <clears throat> I have to tell my kids all the time, everything in the world is not good. And many things look good, but they're not good. We can say more on that. We talked a little bit yesterday about program non-response and that through media especially, through music and television and programs, video games, through books and other means, the devil is conditioning the world and he's preparing the world for his final great deceptions in the last days. 
And man, if you just trace the history of television over the last 70 years, you can see very clearly that that's the case. And our society has been conditioned to not respond to the deeper things of darkness that he's trying to present to the world through this. And so we looked at a number of examples, and we're going to look at some more today. Uh, we started with Fantasia, one of the very first shows that came out, an innocent story, but introducing magic and witchcraft as a positive thing. Does God say anything even remotely positive about witchcraft or spiritualism in Scripture? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible for Him to speak so negatively against it and then at the same time say something positive about it, see? So it's either or, or this is, this is one of those issues. You know, I, I believe that in the Christian life, there's issues of growth and then there's issues of surrender. Does that make sense? For me to work or not work on the Sabbath, is that an area of growth or surrender? My choice of Sabbath activities, is that an issue of growth or surrender? It's an issue of growth, you see. My, my, my decision to smoke or not smoke, drink alcohol or not alcohol, is that an issue of growth or surrender? It's an issue of surrender. Unclean foods, growth or surrender? Vegetarian, vegan diet, growth or surrender? It's growth. You see the difference here. And this topic this morning, some of you might say, no, it's an issue of surrender. No, I don't agree with that. It's an issue of growth. Amen? But this issue is not an issue of growth. It's an issue of what? It's an issue of surrender. Now, I might grow in my understanding of what God says not to do, but it's either yes or no. It's black or white, you see. It's I either do it or I don't once I learn it. It's not an issue of growth. So we looked at some of these ones that have progressed through the years, the Adams family, Bewitched, and so forth. We looked at the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And by the way, somebody came to me and mentioned something about this, and I think it's worth noting that on the journey to the Wizard of Oz, these different people wanted something each unique. The lion wanted what? Courage or bravery. The scarecrow wanted a new hearts. The tin man wanted a new mind. And Dorothy wanted to go where? Home. Isn't that interesting? I wanted courage. I wanted, a new I wanted to be renewed in my mind. And I wanted a new heart. Those three things that God gives us when we're reborn in Jesus. They make their way on the yellow brick road. The streets of heaven are yellow brick road. They get to the celestial city, and <clears throat> once they get there, and supposedly the man who is this great and glorious Oz is going to grant them all of their desires. And when they get there, and there's these wonderful people that dwell there, when they get there, there's these weird little people that live there, right? And then they get in before Oz, and they realize that Oz, this man who would grant them all of their desires, a new heart, a new mind, and courage, strength for life, is a fraud. And those things are not really possible. But in fact, what they learned in that story is that they realized, according to the story, that they already had all those things. 
The solution to those things lied not with the man behind the curtain, but within them own, their own selves. Isn't that what spiritualism teaches? The power is not from above. The power is where? The power is within. And so there was this statement that the man made when little Toto ran behind the curtain. He said, pay no attention to the little man behind the curtain. And it says, <clears throat> again, is there a man that was behind the curtain in the sanctuary? Who's that? It was Jesus, right? It was God Himself. You know, the other thing that's interesting I thought about this is that Dorothy's desire was to go where? Home. She was already in the supposed celestial city. And where did she want to go? Back to the place of destruction and despair. So there's an attraction to, to, to not be in that place. That place really isn't for you. Where you really need to be is where? Is where you need to be home. You need to be right here on this planet as it is. So those are just a few extra things that I thought about between what we talked about. So let's talk now about Harry Potter. We left off here yesterday. And uh, Harry Potter <clears throat> has just exploded in the last 20 years. Most definitely the most influential series of books in modern times. In fact, there is the only book that has sold more than Harry Potter is the Bible. The only book. Uh, so, <clears throat> how did Harry Potter begin? I find this very interesting. And this is true about Lord of the Rings. It's true about Chronicles of Narnia. That all the authors, and many... I'm going to flip this back because you're going to sit and read that while I'm trying to make a point. And, uh, <laughs> and some of you are like... And so we're going to bring that back. What's very interesting about much of modern music, and I don't have slides for this, but I've read it many times, is that many of the artists and the story writers of movies, they will say, they've actually confessed this, that they've given themselves over to whatever power will give them creativity and make them rich, and that they will sit down at their desk and almost go into a bit of a trance. And they're kind of cognizant, but they're kind of not. And they notice that they pick up a pen and their hand starts moving. And once they come out of that trance, there's a song. Or there's a storyline for a new movie or whatever it is. And they admit that they are controlled by some kind of power that is beyond themselves. Now, to be fair, that power is either the power of God or it is the power of something else, you see. And notice what J.K. Rowling says about Harry Potter. In 1990, my then-boyfriend and I decided to get a flat and move to Manchester. One weekend after flat hunting, I took the train back to London on my own, and the idea for Harry Potter fell into my head. Now watch this. Harry just strolled into my head. How? Fully formed. I really did feel he was someone who walked up and introduced himself in my mind's eye. So how did Harry Potter pop into her head? It wasn't something that she mulled over for a while, but he popped into her head. Those two words I find fascinating, fully formed. And she started to write. And since that time, more than 500 Harry, million Harry Potter books have been sold in, uh, worldwide in over 80 languages. It is the best 
best-selling book series of all time. And it is the best, there's multiple books, but those books are the best-selling books other than the Bible. Now what's interesting is that one in every 15 people in the world own at least one Harry Potter book. Now watch this statistic in comparison. There is one Adventist for every 308 people in the world. Did you get that? One out of every 15 people in the world own a Harry Potter book, but there's only one Adventist for every 308 people in the world. How many of you think we're a little bit behind? Maybe you ought to go back after this seminar and listen on audio to the BibleStudyOffer.com seminar. Amen? Start giving some Bible studies. But people have said, people have argued and they have defended Harry Potter and they've said, but our kids are reading again. In the age of the, of the 1980s and early 90s, the rate of literacy and the, and the rate of reading went significantly down. And with the birth of Harry Potter at a time when kids were reading almost less than ever, this, the number of kids reading books began to skyrocket. And so parents are saying, oh, Harry Potter gave a renewed love of reading for our kids. And people will point to the good things about something that's not good and think it's good. Well, just like people say, oh, well, you know, the doctor says a glass of wine every night before I go to bed, you know, lowers my heart risk and yada, 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 and has all these benefits. And all of the same benefits that you get out of wine, you get out of grape juice. Because, because wine is fermented grape juice, and all that means is that it's rotten. The fermentation means the grape juice has rotted, and as it breaks down, it releases gases that bring the intoxifying effect to you. So wine is rotten grape juice. And so, why would you drink the wine to get the supposed benefits that grape juice brings when you can drink the grape juice and get the benefits without the poison? I mean, it just makes sense. Oh, Jesus turned water into wine. You mean Jesus turned water into rotten grape juice? Is that what He did? Because that's what it is. No, He turned it into fresh wine. Fresh juice. Amen? So, many people try to use this argument about many different topics that, oh, it presents good. I'm going to tell you what. You can take the most wicked, satanic leader in the world and he can teach you some good things. Are you with me? So just because there's some appearance of good doesn't mean it's good for you. You have to ask yourself the question, is there something negative associated with this that is wrapped in good that may lead me away from what truly is good. That's why the Bible tells us to be weary and to be watchful and to be discerning and to be thoughtful about the things that we present ourselves with. That's why Paul wrote Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, good, and noble, meditate on these things. That's why Paul gives many warnings to be, to be careful about those things. That's why Jesus said, that in the last days of earth's history, the deception will be so great that if possible, even the elect might be deceived. See? That's why we have these warnings. Chuck 
Colson. How many of you are familiar with Chuck Colson? <clears throat> he was a very, uh, very well-known Christian leader. He was convicted guilty for in the Watergate scandals, but in prison and became a Christian. He got out. He started a prison ministry. A wonderful man. I'm not criticizing the man, but I just want you to notice what he and this is very parallel to many other Christian leaders, what they say about things like Harry Potter. The magic, and he's talking here about Harry Potter. Potter. The magic in these books is purely mechanical. That is, Harry and his friends cast spells, read crystal balls, and then turn themselves into animals, but they don't make contact with the supernatural world. What in the world? What do you mean? God doesn't just condemn making contact with the spiritual world, but He condemns all those activities because whether, don't miss this, whether you intend to or not, or even if you, if you specifically say, I'm doing this, but I am unintentionally not going to, I'm, I'm not going to contact the spirit world. Even if you intentionally try to perceive that you're not doing that, you are. You don't have to be intentional about it, just the activity. It's like somebody saying, well, I'm going to drink a fifth of vodka, but I'm not going to get drunk. It's not going to make me drunk. So I might drink a case of beer, but I will not get drunk. I'm going to smoke, smoke two marijuana joints, but I'm not going to get high. It's just a natural reaction. It's a gateway. You do the stuff, and you're in the supernatural world whether you think so or whether you want to or not. People say, well, I'm going to just play with a Ouija board and it's just innocent fun. You automatically enter that world. You see? And so it's, it's very hard-pressing. I don't, don't do it because there's just no point to you. Just listen to the seminar. I did it just because of the sake of the seminar. But it's very hard-pressing to get into when you look on the internet and try to find any Christian groups that don't embrace positively Harry Potter. It's very hard to find. Almost everybody speaks positively about it. it, it it's just mind-blowing. I thought I could find more people that said, no, this is not good, but I, it's hard to find. The Bible makes no distinction between White and black, magic, good or bad, witches, Scripture condemns the use of it in any form or fashion, yes? So, this is uh, a headline. It was a news article from uh, the uh, Christian Post in 2007 speaking about Harry Potter. The series is considered to be one of the history's greatest classic depictions between good and evil. In the last book, Harry dies and is resurrected. So many Bible believers are claiming it as a Christian allegory a fictionalized modern-day adaptation of the life of Christ intended to introduce Him to a new generation. Now this is very interesting, friends, because in the Bible, the first beast of Revelation receives a deadly wound and then is miraculously healed. So any storyline that has a person who dies and comes back from the dead is not necessarily an allegory about Jesus Christ. It's just not. Okay? In fact, I would go out on a limb and say probably most aren't. Because again, once again, in the Bible, the Antichrist apparently dies and then is resurrected into power. 
See? So just because we like to think we want to make these things allegories doesn't mean that they are. Albus Dumbledore, one of the key characters in um, Harry Potter, commends Harry the vir- in Harry the virtues of love, loyalty, and innocence. It is these powers that are able to raise him from the dead. And so people point to this and they say, look, in Harry Potter you find stories, or you find lessons of love, loyalty, innocence, power to overcome hardship and death, and all these things. There's no doubt that those things might be taught in there. I will never deny that they aren't. But the question is, do we take the poison with the antidote? When you read the Bible, you're not going to get that type of confusion. You're going to get those very same lessons without all the garbage, you see. So why do we need that when we have this? And the reason this seems dull and boring to many people today is because they've simply been watching too much of that. It's just the bottom line. It's just just what it is. In the first Harry Potter book, a curse was reflected back on Harry. He was fighting some bad guy and he sent a curse up to him and the guy deflected it and it came back and hit Harry, causing a lightning-shaped scar on his face. If you look here, that's where, um, that's where this picture right here... Let me find it. See the bottom right picture? That girl that has a little lightning bolt on her forehead? That's what that is. It's, the, it's that very same thing that this is talking about here. Alright. And so... Uh, Albus Dunlamore, who is his friend, remarked to a fellow wizard, he'll have that scar forever. Think about that. What are the scars that remain on Jesus' hands? In the Old Testament it says, these are the wounds which I've received in the house of my what? My friends. And those scars were the only reminder of sin throughout all eternity. And here is the book trying to duplicate that. Making Harry Potter a form of a Savior. And people say, well, you know, it's an allegory that teaches people about Jesus. Why don't you just teach them about Jesus? Because when you compare Jesus to fake figures, many of the false uh, replicas of the story come out of that story and they're mixed with magic. And when you start to mix the the understanding of magic with the power of God, people get confused, see? And then the kids start to see it as one unanimous thing. And they think, well, if Harry Potter is fake, if Santa is fake, if the Tooth Fairy is fake, then probably God must be fake too. What's the difference? That's why you don't teach falsehoods to your kids. That's why you don't let them read the fiction books. Because there are more true-to-life books in the world than your kid can ever read. So why do they even need those things? You see what I'm saying? They don't need them. Harry is often uplifted as a noble and righteous character who eventually gives his life for his friends, but is later resurrected because of his goodness. However, at the same time, Harry lies, breaks rules, has temper tantrums, swears, 
and above all, doesn't exist. Yet millions of young people today idolize Him as an example of truth, loyalty, and goodness. And once again, friends, who's the greatest source of love, loyalty, and innocence? And let me tell you something today. Remember the first day I told you we could talk about playing with a matchbox Ferrari or driving the real Ferrari? Harry Potter's the matchbox, and Jesus is the Ferrari. Why would you just go down the pipe and play with the matchbox when you can have the real thing? Why do you go all this way out of your way with all a bunch of fiction to try to teach them about the God that's real? Just teach them about the God that's real. How many can say amen to that? This is pretty easy. Any form of witchcraft has a common denominator. It is sophisticated occult science claiming to offer human beings supernatural power and personal godhood. It seeks to make self a god, and many, in many cases, the people of Wiccans and so forth, they do not believe in the devil. Isn't that interesting? Mind-blowing to me. I say more, but we've got to move on. Witchcraft, no matter how innocent, uh, how innocent, leads people to feel no need for a Savior from sin and guilt because it leads them to believe that they are gods themselves with power over sin and death. Why do I need a God to save me when I'm a God myself? See? And witchcraft and sorcery and spiritualism in its purest form, you see we studied it all the way back in Genesis, leads me to believe that I am God with a little g. See there? Harry Potter is a gateway to what? Spiritualism. Bottom line, it is spiritualism. Record numbers of young people who are becoming Wiccans relate their beginning reading to Harry Potter. If you notice, remember in the mid-90s, 8,000 witches on the earth. Today, more than, uh, in the U.S., I'm sorry. Today, more than 2 million. And that number exploded to over 100,000 in the year 2000, uh, no, it was 2000-ish. What do you associate the explosion of desire to be witches and warlocks with? Harry Potter, the first book, came out in what year? 1998. That's where the explosion came from. And people are trying to say, no, 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 no. There's no connection. Because our kids know that Harry Potter is fake. That's, that's the argument that Christians will make. Our kids know and understand that all of this is fake. Yet, thousands... No, no. Hundreds of thousands are leaving the church, leaving the Christian faith to become Wiccans. Why? Because they're reading this. Rowling stated this. This is an interesting statement she makes. I get letters from children addressed to Professor Dumbledore, and it's not a joke. They are begging to be let into Hogwarts, and some of them are really sad because they want it to be true so badly they've convinced themselves that it is true. And here's what the book says. I was reading about this. I, I haven't read the books. So I won't read them. But here's what the, some of the articles were saying. Hogwarts, which is the school of witchcraft, it's a castle, is actually located in Scotland. But it is to the... What, what, the, the, the they have a definition for people who don't believe in magic and they call them... Is it muggles? Muggles, yeah. To muggles, which would be all of us, all it looks is an ancient 
uh, ruins of old castles with signs that say danger. But to those who believe in magic, they can actually see it. And there it is. And so people go there and it's in secret and it's in hiding. And they really believe it's a real place. Very interesting. Very interesting. Here's a couple of statements from young people. They say, I thought the story really made you feel like you could be a wizard or a witch. Lily, 11 years old. I like what they learned at Hogwarts and I want to be a witch 10 years old. My son is 10 years old. He doesn't want to be a witch or a warlock because he hasn't read the books. Nor will he and when he's under my house. <laughs> and man, let me tell you, I give my kids all kinds of fun things to do, but they don't have to do that stuff. We don't have to just let ourselves drift with the current of society. We can stand as a rock in the current and not be moved. So, the question is, will they know the difference? Can God become like Harry to them? A fictional uh, character that has these kind of things. <clears throat> God can become the same level as Harry Potter in their eyes. So many people, several of you have asked me, I've probably had at least ten people ask me this week, what's the difference in Harry Potter and Pilgrim's Progress? <clears throat> there's a big difference. In fact, there's a lot of differences. And the difference is, is this. Pilgrim's Progress truly is a Christian allegory. Harry Potter is not. J.K. Rowling makes no inclination that it's that. It's just Christian leaders have tied to that. But the author of Pilgrim's Progress says it is. And I firmly believe that God gave him the dream that he wrote down. But the difference is this. All forms of evil in Pilgrim's Progress are labeled clearly as evil. There is no evil that is called good unless it's an example of Christian lesson. You understand what I'm saying? Like somebody's doing it and then they call them out for it and expose it. All forms of spiritualism are condemned in the book. And the book tells true to life scenarios that Christian is on that all Christian believers deal with in the Christian life. Does that make sense? And so everything that happens in the story can truly happen in real life. Or has happened. Or, or You understand what I'm saying? They're all true-to-life scenarios. And they might be pictured in allegories, but they're true to life. Very little in Harry Potter is true to life. See? It's all fictitious, and it is things that God condemns. So there's huge differences between that. Here in the book, The Great Controversy, Ellen White actually talks about Harry Potter, uh, not Harry Potter, but uh, man, I wish she would write something about it. <laughs> if she was alive today, she probably would. But she writes about Pilgrim's Progress, and it says, again, as in apostolic days, persecution turned out to the furtherance of the gospel. And a loathsome dungeon crowded with um, prolificates and felons, John Bunyan breathed in the very atmosphere of heaven. And there he wrote his wonderful allegory of the pilgrim's journey from the land of destruction to the celestial city. And remember, when he gets to the celestial city, he's not disappointed like they were in Wizard of Oz. See? It's truly the real thing. For over 200 years, the voice from Bedford Jail has spoken with thrilling power to the hearts of men. Bunyan's pilgrim's progress has guided many feet into the path of light. It teaches truth not just darkness and truth mixed together. And so uh, here she says another one in the book Here to Forever. It's another statement. I'm not going to read it. Let's talk a little bit about Lord of the Rings. 
Because many people ask me that. And they say, uh, well, you know, Lord of the Rings is a perfect picture of the great controversy. No doubt, no doubt, it does portray a battle between good and evil. I won't deny that. But every movie does. And what, but what the devil's twist on that is, is he takes that which is bad. You know, I, one time I was in Malaysia and there were these monitor speakers, and I was on a platform about this high. I don't know why they had it so high. And I kicked one of those speakers off the platform and it fell and hit the floor. And that was a moment of awakening for everyone. You pray for me, I don't fall off this thing. But listen, the devil's twist in all these modern things like this is that he takes that which is bad and puts a good twist on it so that you become sympathetic to the bad. Okay? Now, look at this. The whole storyline is a ring that was forged that would bring all of the groups of people in this Middle Earth together in unity. Okay? And whoever possessed that ring would have the power to do so. They would all be forced to bow the knee. They'd all be what? To do what? At the end of time, at the end of the millennium, every person that's ever lived will be there and the Bible says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Will they be forced to do so? No. They will do it under their own free will. But in this storyline, all the tribes of the earth will come together and force them to be under one rule. Okay? And whoever possesses that ring has great power. And there's this enemy, Sauron, who's trying to do this. But I want you to see this. This is the description of the ring. This is not my words. This is the words off the movie. It says, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, what? Bind them. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Now that's very interesting. What do you say? To, in, to bind them in the darkness. Now this ring falls into the hand of Mr. Frodo. And it's his job to take it to this mountain and get rid of it. Okay? And in the, the midst of that, he becomes essentially addicted to the ring. Every time he puts the ring on, he becomes invisible. Okay? But every time he puts the ring on, the really bad guy, Sauron, he can see him in the spiritual realm. Are you with me so far? I'm not trying to get too deep into this, but I want to make a point. And throughout the story, there's a story, uh, there's another character called Gollum, who once was a hobbit and who had once possessed that ring and it turned him into a monster. Okay? And so what happens is, is you become sympathetic with both characters playing with the thing that's going to bind everybody in darkness. And you become sympathetic with the whole picture. Now that's just. I mean, I could sit here till noon telling you these types of things. But throughout the whole series of the videos, you have magic and witchcraft and sorcery and darkness, and it is not in any way a Christian allegory. You understand? 
And so it doesn't reject the dark. I mean, it does in a sense, but all the while that it's trying to reject it, it's also embracing it. Did you catch that? All the while, the ultimate darkness is rejected and overcome, it's embracing it and at times using it to overcome. Does God call us to use the powers of darkness to overcome? What do you think? No, He doesn't. He does not at any time call us to do that. So there are subtle little things throughout. It's really quiet in here right now. Now, I don't want to judge you, and I'm not, and I'm not judging you. I love you. Sometimes I, I'm known as a straight speaker, but you, you talk to me individually. You know I love you. My church members, they all knew I loved them. And I say this in sweet kindness. But I almost assure you, and I don't say it because I know you or I judge you, but because I know crowds of people, wherever they are, that some of you today have Harry Potter movies, Lord of the Ring movies, on your shelf at home right now. Right now. Right now you got it. Or you got the books, or you got whatever. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I can really assure you that I think I know what God wants you to do. And you've got to make a decision today. Ellen White asked the question in that statement, have you burned your magical books? In those days, they didn't have movies, but if she, if she were alive today, she would have read your book, said your books and your movies and your games. Have you done it? My own testimony, I came to Jesus in the middle of the time when the Lord of the Ring movies were coming out. And the first two came out. I'm ashamed to say this, but I'm telling you this, this is my pre-Christian days. And I'm telling you this because I want you to know God can give you victory over it. I went to the first movie at the movie theater 13 times. I watched the movie itself 26 times. The second movie came out. I went to the theater nine times to see it. Several times by myself because I was so wrapped up in that stuff. And between the time when the second and the third movie came out, I became an Adventist Christian. And you can't know the struggle I had about going and watching those movies. You know, actually, I, I have to say this. Actually, no. Between the first and the second movie is when I came a Christian. And I was going, no one told me it wasn't a good idea to go to the movie theaters. Isn't it? And it's not. Because you can't control what you see. Brand new movie, you don't know what you're going to see. All kinds of ads, you don't know what you're going to see. Overwhelming stimulation with sound and sight, you don't know what. You, you just, this is not a good environment. But I went to the second movie several times. And I started to think to myself, this is when I was a college student, you know, this just doesn't seem to be the right thing to do. And I began to pray about that. And in the battle, I went a few more times. And it got to where that it just became, I said, Lord, if you don't want me to do this, you just... And that was actually in the midst of me getting rid of the books too that I told you about yesterday. 
And I just realized, like, I just became disinterested in it. It was like very, I became very uncomfortable. I became like, almost like, there's something else going on behind the scenes here. And I don't want to be in this room with it. And so, right in the middle of one of them, I got up and left. And I never watched it since. And I made a vow to the Lord. You can still make vows today. Not, not to be saved. Because our salvation is dependent. But you can make a vow to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm going to do this. Because I love you. I said, Lord, I'm not going to watch that third movie ever. And by the grace of God, I haven't done it. And I'm telling you, friends, these things, the point is that the devil wants he doesn't care what the world thinks. He just appeals to their carnal nature and their lower passions. But God's people, He wants you to think it's innocent. He wants you to think it's okay. He wants you to think there's not a thing in the world wrong with it. And He wants you to defend it to other people. Instead of defending the Gospel, we're defending Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Oh man, Pastor West, you didn't just go there. What about the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, friends, I think it's probably less harmful than Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. However, less harmful is still what? It's still harmful. <laughs> and it's the same principles. It's pure fiction. And it's, and it's showing using that which God condemns. And I want to share with you something. People say, yeah, but it's a Christian allegory. And I, <clears throat> and I, want it, I'm, I'm, I don't have a slide for it, but I'm going to make a statement about something, so don't let me forget. But many people say, oh, but Chronicles of Narnia is absolutely, clearly a Christian allegory. Well, probably the best person to consult about that would be who? Well, God, yes, but who else besides God? Probably the author. How many of you agree with that today? So let's see what does the author of the book say about the Christian allegory idea. Let's see what he says. Some people, this is C.S. Lewis. Some people seem to think that I began by asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children, and then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, and then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. This is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write in that way. Now notice, remember how it came to J.K. Rawlings. He says, it all began with what? Images. A fawn carrying an umbrella. A queen on a sledge. A magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. And how did it push itself in? From other people saying that's what it is. When the author says it wasn't that. Now if you notice, the same thing happened to him in this... I'm not saying C.S. Lewis is not a Christian man. He was a good man. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. He had a few things I disagree with. He has a lot that I agree with. But this is not one of them. And so the same thing happened to... Can, can the devil influence a godly Christian person to make him a Yes! So in saying this, I'm not saying he's not Christian. I'm saying he probably didn't, pretty should have rejected that idea and filtered it through the Bible first, okay? But the same thing happened to him as happened to J.K. Rowling and J.R.R. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings and in many modern music today. 
stuff just started popping in their heads. Fully formed out of what they perceived to be nowhere. But I'm going to tell you today, not every thought that pops in your head means it's from the Lord. Okay? Now, he goes on, he says this, some people seem to think I began by asking myself how I should say something about Christianity. Oh no, I'm sorry, that's the same quote. But he, I wanted you to see this, the fawn. What exactly is a fawn? This is one of the characters he based his, um, his uh, story on. A fawn is, this is the definition, one of a class of lustful rural gods represented as a man with a goat's horn, ears, legs, and tail. Isn't that interesting? A lustful God. And, and, and you know, I don't, I don't want to make too much out of this, but if you, if, you, if you have seen the movie, I've seen parts of it, just to understand certain things. The, the fawn in the, character, in the movie is very close with the little girl. Almost very, almost intimate, and it's a weird thing to me. Very weird to me. Now, I wanted to say something else about um, before I go to this. And, I, and, and one day I'll put a slide in this. I just ran out of time. <clears throat> I watched this little scene. When, when the lion, what's it? I don't remember his name. What is it? Aslan or something. Aslan, something like that. Anyway, when he goes to the witch of darkness, and he sacrifices himself for the boy who sinned. Everybody says, oh, that's a picture of Jesus. And the powers of darkness, you know, they mutilated him and they shaved off his hair. And they laid him up on this rock. And the witch takes her spear and drives it through him and he dies. And they say, oh, that's a picture of Jesus giving his life for, for the people. The next morning is very interesting because the two girls are there and they, they, they're, they're touching him and they see that he's dead and then they, they're very sad. They get up, they turn around and they walk away. And as they walk away, they hear a, a really large sound. It goes like this. And they look back and the, and the rock which the lion was killed on is now broken in half. People say, oh man, it's like when the angel came and rolled away the stone. And they look up and there standing in the sunlight is Aslan now resurrected. He's alive again. He comes down and he talks to them. And he says that the witch failed to understand, and notice what he says, the true power of magic. And that is that when one who is pure and innocent gives his life for one that has transgressed, that, and if he dies, because he's pure, even the power of dark magic can't hold him in the grave. So, the persona is that resurrection from the dead because of being pure and innocent is not the power associated to God, but it is also the power of what? Magic. The power of magic. Now that's extremely subtle, and some people might say, yeah, that's taking a little far. I don't think so. I think it's a blaring point, but that's, that is the point, is that it is presented as subtle. 
some of the most subtle points in some of these movies are some of the most strong arguments against it. Are you with me? So, I'm not going to say anything else about Chronicles of Narnia. You make your own decision. But I will tell you this. I shared this a few years ago at a camp meeting. And there was a family. You draw your own conclusions from this. Young family that was there. The mother came up to me a year after that seminar. And she said, in my family, one of my sons was having panic attacks in the middle of the night. And he said, it feels like someone's choking me. And she said, this went on for over a year. And she said, when I came... Oh, two years actually. Said when I, she said, we got rid of everything that we thought possible that was associated with spiritualism or anything. We got rid of it all. Everything. Books, movies, whatever. She said, but the stuff continued. We had the pastor come and pray. We did all these things. And she said, I came to your seminar and I heard what you said about Chronicles of Narnia. And I said exactly what I told you here today. And she said, we got to get rid of that. She said, we went home and we took all the books and DVDs. We set them down and we prayed and we asked God to deliver him from this. And the doctor said, we, we find nothing wrong with him. And we got rid of those things and we dedicated ourselves freshly to the Lord. And she said, the panic attack stopped. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who watches Chronicles of Narnia is going to have that kind of experience. I'm not saying that. But even the fact that one person had an experience ought to get our attention. What do you say? All right, let's go on because I'm running out of time. How about Frozen and many Disney movies? I want to share with you just a few points about this. In the movie Frozen and Frozen 2, there are the four spirits of air, water, fire, and early uh, permit in Frozen 2. These are presented as the creator of the earth. So the spirits of nature are designated as essentially the Creator. Those are the ones that bring life to the world. That's exactly what Wicca teaches. The concept of follow your heart. Every time they get in a troubling situation, the, the counsel is follow your own heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? I don't even, I'm telling you what, friends, there are times I don't even trust my own renewed heart. <laughs> Because the old man is always kicking on the door right there. When, I, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm needing counsel, I want to go to the Word of God or to the Spirit of prophecy, not to consult myself. So that's a dangerous thing. Put in the hearts of millions of young people. Number three, Elsa, who's the main character, is on a search for the missing spirit. There's like five spirits, I think, and, and there's one that's missing. And she's like, oh, I know about the one of air, water, fire, and, and whatever, and I want to find the missing one. Well, towards the end of the movie, she finds out that the missing spirit is herself. Once again, the power comes from where? Within. And it's that spirit, she's told, that will unite all the other spirits and all the other people in the world. It's for herself to believe that she is a God or she is a spirit, and she has the power to bring everybody else together. Man, that sounds a lot like the book of Revelation. Spirits of darkness hovering over, and the people of the earth give them permission to rule over them to unite the earth in one final battle against God. I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty clear to me. 
Here's a phrase from the movie. It says, step into your power. You are the one you've been waiting for all your life. With this message, Elsa realizes that she has within her all that she needs. Is that the message you want your kids to learn? How about, how about uh, oh, here's another one. Nothing is permanent. The, the, one of the side figures gets disappointed through life because he realizes nothing is permanent. And that would include, you know, ultimately, the love of God. And then the last point I want to make about this is the song, Let It Go. Man, millions of kids are singing this song. Let it go, let it go. I don't even know the tune, but they're singing it. Have you ever read the words to this song? Have you ever heard those words? Watch it. Here's the words, here's the lyrics. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight. Not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation. And it looks like I'm the queen. Are we in a kingdom of isolation here from the rest of the universe? Oh yes. The wind is how. And why are we in isolation? Because of sin. The wind is howling like the swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I've tried. So there's a storm outside and there's a storm where? Inside. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Don't let who in? Heaven. Don't let them in. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I've tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Other people in heaven. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. Turn away from what? From heaven. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. So the coldness of sin doesn't really bother me. I'm just going to continue in it. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small and the fears that once controlled me can't get me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. Test the limits of what? <laughs> of God's law. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Some of your kids and grandkids are singing this song on a daily basis. Let's keep going. Let it go, let it go. I'm the one with the wind and sky. Let it go, let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand and here I stay. Let the storm rage on. Let what storm? The storm of sin. Let it keep going. I don't want it to end. My power flurries through the air into the ground. My soul is spiraling and frozen fractals all around. And one thought crystallizes like an icy blast. Notice this. I'm never going back the past is the past. Never going back to what God's intention for me was. I'm going to stay right here. Let it go, let it go, when I rise like the break of dawn. See, even despite all of that, I'm still going to rise with the dawn. In the Bible, you only rise with the dawn when you believe in Jesus. But I can do it myself. Let it go, that perfect girl is gone. Isn't that interesting? Were we once perfect on the earth? Humanity speaking? Yeah. Here I stand in the light of day. No matter, in other words, the light of day. Who sheds the light? When God comes again and sheds His light on the earth, what's it in? It's in the light of the second coming. Here I stand in the light of day. The second coming. Let the storm rage on. The storm of sin rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Now I'm not saying that 
The intent is all those things I said, but man, the element sure is there, isn't it? This is one of the most popular songs in the world today, and there we go. Now, I got to rush because I got four minutes. Another show, I'm not going to get into this, but The Conjuring, but I want you to see the tagline. This is, a, this is a very evil movie. I've never seen it and never will, but it is dark and deep. But what's the tagline of it? The devil made me what? The devil made me do it. And there's been a whole series about that. Most Hollywood movies today display the great controversy theme and present false concepts in such a winsome way to gain the confidence of the viewer on the side of darkness, which is often twisted and portrayed as good or victimized. And what do we do? What are we doing as parents? We're, many parents, I'm not saying you, but many are saying, well, it's what they want to watch, so what am I supposed to do? How many of you have heard people say that? Well, I know it's not good, but at least they're reading. At least they have an interest in something. The two best things you can ever do, ever say to your kids, is no, and let's wait a while and see. And many times you let them wait, they'll see it's maybe not so good. Don't be afraid to tell your kid no. It's quite alright to do so. And quite recommended by God. And I have a whole slew of things I was going to share with you, which I won't because of time. But there's all kinds of people in the Bible. Aaron was one. Couldn't say no to the people, nor could he say no to his sons. And his sons became priests, and they were so wicked because Aaron didn't say no to them that God killed them. Eli the priest, same situation. He wouldn't say no. And they, were, they become self-indulgent. He just let them run their course and God ended up having to kill them. Not a good thing. Let's do this. <clears throat> i got a few things I'm going to share. We may go over five minutes, but how many of you will stay? Alright, good. So, The Walking Dead, real quickly. I just wanted to make this point. It's a very powerful point. This is a line from one of the programs. I, didn't, I don't watch it. I haven't seen it, but I was reading online about it. He says this, these two guys are interacting, these two main characters. Rick, you're a man of God. Have some faith about the whole zombie apocalypse kind of thing. And it says, I can profess to understand, I can't understand, I can't profess to understand God's plan. Christ promised us a resurrection of the dead. I just thought he had something a little different in mind. <laughs> I mean, my word. He's speaking re language of Revelation, isn't he? Revelation chapter 20. Now, this is very interesting. I always wondered, why are people so fascinated with zombies? And there's a couple of reasons. One is because what the zombie is on the outside, they feel on the inside. Yes, many people, and they say, I just feel dead. There's no life in me. And so they connect with that. But why has the devil made such a, a rampant remake of zombie movies? It's very simple. Because in Revelation chapter 20, at the end of the thousand years, you have the ultimate and final zombie apocalypse. All those who are dead and in the graves are going to be raised back to life for the final judgment. See? And the devil now is conditioning the people of the earth to be sympathetic with his cause. You see that? And he's going to gather them together for that battle and for one final deception. This stuff is serious. It's not a joke. 
it's not just entertainment. It's not fake versus real. It's only real. It's all real. And what seems fake in the movie or in the book is real in the spiritual world. You understand what I'm saying? And there's a battle for your soul and for the souls of your kids and your grandkids. And we see it happening. I mean, Ellen White says here that in that last sentence, witchcraft and sorcery are practiced in this Christian age and Christian nation even more boldly than by the old-time magicians. She's talking about America. And some of us are bringing it right into our living rooms. Let me get past this. Can we safely say that God is influencing these movies if they can contain elements that are contrary to His Word? What do you say? No, I don't think so. I'm on a... I'm not trying to pick on movies. I'm not trying to pick on whatever. I'm not trying to be hard-lined. But friends, I mean, this stuff is just obvious. It doesn't take a genius to figure it out. I've shared some of this stuff with people who are atheists, and they're like, man, there's something going on there. Pretty clear to me. People say I won't be influenced. Jesus said, your eye is the lamp of the body. Whatever you see, it's either going to be light or darkness. And whatever your eye sees, the rest of your body and your heart are going to follow. Yes or no? That's what Jesus said. I mean, it's just the words of Jesus. Now, let me just say this real quick. I want to come to this. I talked about these two guys and how in our world today, young people are not being told no. And I see it. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be critical. But even in like, even in the, I see young people in academies and other things, they just kind of rule the roost. And it's just whatever they want to do. It's like the rest of the family goes along. I stood in a, in a grocery store one night and the mother was getting irritated with like the, the seven-year-old boy because he wouldn't tell her what he thought the family ought to have for supper. And she was getting front. Well, I don't know what to get unless you tell me what, what, what everybody's going to want. What are you doing, lady? What are you talking about? I mean, that's just ludicrous. And man, I just wish I had time uh, to do this. I, I want you to see, there's just some powerful statements here, but we just don't have time to read all these. Well, let me just read this. <laughs> Where is it? There it is. There's no greater curse upon households than allow the youth to have their own way. That doesn't mean, I mean, that doesn't mean you give them good things. You give them choices within the context of good. You see? You teach them to be leaders. You teach them to make good choices. We give our kids choices all the time. But it's not Harry Potter or the Bible. It's this Christian book or that Christian book. Which one would you like to read? And when you're done with that one, you can read the other one. You know, those are the kind of choices. Not, well, whatever is available to me, that's what I'm going to go after. No, 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 no. That's dangerous. So many times we're indulging our kids, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm pointing the finger at myself. Um, man, I want, to, I want to read this one statement. And then I have one more statement, and then we'll close. Is that fair? Alright. Actually, the Apostles page 474. The warnings of the Word of God regarding the perils surrounding the Christian church belong to us today. 
as in the days of the apostles, men tried by tradition and philosophy to destroy faith in the Scripture, so today the pleasing sentiments of higher criticism, evolution, spiritualism, uh, theosophy, and pantheism, the enemy of righteousness is seeking to lead souls into forbidden paths. And uh, I'm not going to read this one. Well, she says this, By spiritualism, multitudes are taught to believe that desire is the highest law, that license is liberty, and that man is accountable only to himself. She says that one of the worst enemies of today is desire. What does that mean? Whatever I want to do, that's what I'm going to do. And she also talks about higher criticism. I'm telling you, I believe in education. I believe in Adventist education but the right kind. And some of what's being taught today is not the right kind. We're sitting there picking the Bible apart and young people go to Adventist universities leaving as atheists. Not just because they got influenced by drinking parties, but they got influenced by the classroom. By higher criticism. People doubting the spirit of prophecy. Parts of the Bible aren't really true. Parts of the Bible can't be fully trusted. Parts of the Bible aren't fully inspired. Come on! Which parts are those? Let me see them. I'd rather believe in inspiration rather than someone's perception of education. Now, I'm not against education. Currently pursuing my master's degree at Southern. Not against it. But we've bought into this thing that anything taught in a school is automatically the Gospel truth. It's not! And we've got to teach our kids in the home to know not just what is right or wrong, but how to discern right and wrong. And not just assume that one day they're going to get it from the pastor or the professor. It's your job to do it. And I say that with kindness and love, with a smile on my face, but with the seriousness of a heart attack. Now, one more statement, and then we're going to tell you a story and we're going to close. I want to get down to this right here. This sums up exactly what I'm, what I'm telling you here. Come on. There we go. Great controversy. Page 5. When I first read this statement, I almost fell out of my chair. I was so blown away by it. Watch this. This is, the, this is spiritualism in our day in the church. In the church. It is true that spiritualism is now changing its form and veiling some of the more objectionable features, is assuming a Christian guise. But its utterances from the platform and the press have been before the public for many years, and in these, the real character stands revealed. These teachings cannot be denied or hidden, even in its present form, so far more from being worthy of toleration than formerly, it is really a more dangerous, more subtle deception. So, spiritualism in its more form today is more deceiving and more deadly than it was even long ago. While it formally denounced Christ and the Bible, it now professes to accept both. But the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart, while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect. Now watch this sentence right here. Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God, but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. What is one of the most major 
mantras and cries from many in our church today. We don't talk about what? Love. Now, here's where it's so hairy. Because we should talk about love. Amen? In every sermon. But what kind of love? The people today, many of them, view love as a toleration of and indulgence of sin. And we say, we're just going to pat you on the back as, you, as we point you in the way to destruction. And we say, you know, God is too loving to destroy sin or sinners. If you read the book Patriarchs and Prophets, she says that's exactly what the people said in Noah's day before the flood. And that's where we're at today. We want to embrace all kinds of sin. I know, I know, I know he reads and watches that stuff, but at least he still goes to church with me every Sabbath. Well, the devil goes to church every Sabbath. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you read the Bible doesn't mean you're saved. You got to let Christ in fully, completely. And when Christ is in the heart, and He's fully in the heart, and He possesses the entire heart, there is no room for any of that other stuff. It's not just that we grit our teeth and tighten our belts and stomp our foot and reject that stuff. No, there's no room for it because my heart is totally consumed with the love of God and a love for the Savior who died for me. And there's this perception today that love equals tolerance of everything. In the old statement, and people make fun of it today, love the sinner and hate the sin. Well, yeah! And the reason I tell my kids no, as I say, I love you too much to let you do that. You don't understand what this will lead to, but I do. And so I'm telling you no. Well, they don't like that. And, and, and today, we're so, we're so emotional that, oh, I just can't stand to see him upset with me. He'll get over it! My kids get upset with me. And in 30 seconds, I'll say, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Well, you seem to... I don't remember what I was upset about. They'll get over it. Sometimes kids need to get their feelings hurt a little bit. But let me tell you, if it takes me hurting my kids' feelings every day to love them and tell them no to sin, that's what I'll do. And eventually, they'll love me for it when they're wise enough. When they actually have some frontal lobe action going on past 25, they'll love me for it one day. You understand? Now, I'm going to tell you this. We can't, be, we can't do it in the wrong spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, man. You see? It's got to be done with love. With a smile. No, and I always tell my kids, no, you may not do that, but you may do this, this, or this. Which would you prefer? I always give them an option. I don't say no, just sit there and do nothing. You've got to be righteous and follow Jesus. You can't do anything. No! I give them all kinds of great things to do. I replace those things. And let me tell you, when you look at the, in the Garden of Eden, there was one tree that God said no to. God told Adam and Eve before sin even entered the world, 
told them, no, don't eat from that tree. <laughs> See that? And so friends, we've got to get a hold of ourselves. Spiritualism has crept right into our theology. And it's killing us. And it's killing us. Now, I'm going to tell you one story, then we're going to close. You ready? Story of my uncle. You can just turn off those slides. I'm done. We want to become living sacrifices, amen, to the Lord God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. When Christ enters the heart, He gives us a new heart. Paul tells the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians, you once walked in darkness, but now you walk in the light of Jesus. Resurrection power is what we want. The power to overcome. The power to raise us from spiritual death. Amen? My uncle and my aunt, a number of years ago, were married together. They're now divorced. My uncle had been attending uh, a, a prophecy seminar in the local Seventh-day Adventist church. My aunt was involved in the occult. She was doing Ouija boards and witchcraft and all kinds of stuff. He comes home one day and tells my aunt, I'm going to join the Adventist church. I'm going to be baptized in two weeks. She said, no, you're not going to be baptized. He said, yes, I am. She didn't say anything else. That night, he woke up and she was straddled on top of him in the bed with a pistol in his throat and said, if you join the Seventh-day Adventist church, I'm going to kill you and our daughter. So he reneged on his decision to follow Jesus. But several days later, the conviction was back again. So he gets brave and he gets courageous and he goes into the house and she's standing in the kitchen with her back turned to him. And he says, I have decided I am going to join the Seventh-day Adventist church. And she said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And she turned around, and, and these are his words, and he's an honest man. He said her eyes were black and her voice changed to that of a, of a man, a deep male voice, and said, you will not join the Adventist church. You may, no, no, don't miss this. You may join any other church but not the Adventist church. If you join the Adventist church, your daughter will die. He made his decision to not join the church. And he continued to live with her. And my uncle was a brilliant man, probably the smartest man in our family. He was an engineer. He, built, he, he designed and built motors he built all kinds of machines and computers. A brilliant man. And he stayed with her and she continued to practice all that stuff until he got out anymore. And to this day, right now, he's only in his 50s, he cannot even complete a sentence. Hardly. You talk to him and he can barely, he can barely get his thoughts across because she, in the practice of witchcraft, it destroyed his mind. I'm telling you, I can tell you stories till midnight about the stuff she used to do to him. And it's utterly destroyed his mind. Friends, I'm telling you today, we live in serious times. We live in times unlike any other. You saw the quote. She said that even in a Christian nation, this stuff is being practiced even more boldly than it was in ancient times. And the devil is preparing the world for his final deception to appear as Christ on the earth and deceive countless millions, hundreds of millions, billions even. And friends, today is not the time to go soft on this kind of thing. It's the time to approach it with love and kindness and grace. But it's a time to make a firm stand on it. You can, you can make a firm stand and still be kind. 
You can make a firm stand and still love the people who are practicing the things that you're taking a stand against. You can do that. It is possible. The world says it's not possible. The world says if you disagree with me, you hate me. But that doesn't, that's not true. Because God takes a stand, a stronger stand than any, and He still loved them enough to die for them. Hallelujah. And so we've got to take a firm stand today and say, Lord, by the grace of God, with a great love in my heart for Jesus, in the power of His resurrection, resurrection power, the power of righteousness and purity and truth, I'm going to take my stand for you today. And I want to ask this morning if maybe you need to take that stand against something in your life, against some issue in your life, some whatever. Maybe you got the books, maybe you got the movies, maybe you've been indulging people. I need to say, Lord, I'm going to give that to you today. If that's you, would you just stand up where you are? Say, Lord, I'm going to give my heart to you this morning. I'm going to give my life to You. And you may need to go home and you may need to clean out some stuff and burn them just like the Ephesians did. Amen? And you may say, I'm not walking in darkness anymore. I'm going to walk in the light of Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus who rose from the dead for me and who's now interceding for me today. Amen? How many of you want to make that decision today? Let me see your hands. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, what a joy it is to follow You What a joy it is to be revived by Your resurrection power. And we would not choose these other things when we have the power of Christ that dwells in us. And Lord, that power gives us life. It doesn't give us an existence merely, but it gives us life. And life more abundantly. And for everything that You call us to lay down, You have a hundred delights ready for us that are much more fulfilling, much richer than any of the things that the devil can counterfeit in this life. So please bless us, Lord. May we stay strong, but may we stay in Your grace. May we not have a misunderstanding of Your love. Not that we just endure and tolerate everything, but that we will not do that, but we will take a firm stand while loving the person. We will still embrace them and as Your sons and daughters, but we will not allow ourselves to indulge the practice. So be close to us, we pray. Bring revival to our hearts throughout the rest of camp meeting and beyond. May we go onward and upward until the day that Jesus comes. This is our prayer and we ask it. You see those here who have made their decisions for You. And I pray Your Spirit rest upon them, Your peace, Your love, Your joy, and the true goodness, the true righteousness that comes only from You. And I pray that for them and their sake and their families. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.